The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Gotta be something I can use in your defense. Did you come here because of political persecution from Canada? Of course not. Would it be dangerous for you to go back? No, no, not really. What is the plea? Your Honor, these are hard-working people. They're having fled the poverty of their native Canada or simply trying to eke out a meager existence here in this wonderful country of... This a speech, Counselor, or will there be a defense? I'm simply trying to help you understand my client's desperation. You may not believe this, Senora Sanchez, but I have heard it all before. Defendants Arturo, Brown, and Wells are ordered deported to Canada as soon as possible. That's it? That's all there is? Chill, Wade. We don't want any more trouble than we've already got. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 9th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Between last week's show and this one... Both Canada and the United States commemorated two significant events in their histories. In the United States, of course, it was July 4th, Independence Day. And in Canada, it was July 1st, Canada Day, formerly known as Dominion Day up until 1982, each representing the founding of their respective countries. Each nation generally enjoys the same rights and freedoms that evolved from the Magna Carta, and each nation suffers from the same internal ideological battles and conflicts which I have always identified simply as left and right. But in one critical respect, the two countries are very different. Their leaders are moving in diametrically opposite directions. And on today's show, we shall begin with a contrast in leadership. America's Donald Trump versus Canada's Justin Trudeau, who each have very differing visions of their respective countries. That conversation begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is welcomed and appreciated. Those who donate $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials. Well, here we are again in the never-ending world of COVID-19 and a Black Lives Matter revolutionary uprising, which is all that I hear and read about by anyone in the mainstream media. Since you officially shut down the traditional July 1st celebrations, ostensibly due to COVID-19, on July 1st Canada Day, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau instead released three separate yet generally identical recorded messages to the people of Canada. And given that his message was the same in all of them, I've selected only one for our perusal in a few moments from now, and as a Canadian, I can only say that there was nothing to be proud of about Canada given the Trudeau interpretation of his country. That guy does not represent me or my values in any way. And of course, on July 4th, Independence Day in the United States, under the majesty of Mount Rushmore, 
U.S. President Donald Trump delivered a magnificent speech to his nation, one which should make every American proud of their country. There was a lot of pomp and ceremony, including fireworks over Mount Rushmore, and Trump honored the many heroes of America's past who made the establishment of the United States of America a reality. A lot of them were among the historical figures whose statues have been toppled by Black Lives Matter. Now, in contrast to Justin Trudeau's token 5-10 to minute messages to Canadians on their national holiday, Trump's presentation went on for quite some time and included not only a national history lesson, but a plan of how Trump will deal with Black Lives Matter and Antifa. But the few minutes that I've selected from his speech for today's focus do not include any of those elements. Instead, I've selected those parts of Trump's speech that best spell out his vision for America. So without much further delay, on this side of our upcoming bumper, it's Donald Trump, as heard in his Mount Rushmore speech. And after listening carefully to Trump's vision for his nation, compare that with Justin Trudeau's vision for Canada, one in which Trudeau is joined by his wife Sophie Gregor as we return on the other side of the bumper. There could be no better place to celebrate America's independence than beneath this magnificent, incredible, majestic mountain monument to the greatest Americans who have ever lived. Our founders launched not only a revolution in government, but a revolution in the pursuit of justice, equality, liberty, and prosperity. No nation has done more to advance the human condition than the United States of America. And no people have done more to promote human progress than the citizens of our great nation. It was all made possible by the courage of 56 patriots who gathered in Philadelphia 244 years ago and signed the Declaration of Independence. They enshrined a divine truth that changed the world forever when they said, all men are created equal. These immortal words set in motion the unstoppable march of freedom. Our founders boldly declared that we are all endowed with the same divine rights given us by our Creator in heaven. And that which God has given us we will allow no one ever to take away, ever. Seventeen seventy six represented the culmination of thousands of years of Western civilization and the triumph of not only spirit, but of wisdom philosophy, and reason. And yet, as we meet here tonight, there is a growing danger that threatens every blessing our ancestors fought so hard for, struggled, they bled to secure. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, 
and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. One of their political weapons is cancel culture, driving people from their jobs, shaming dissenters, and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees. This is the very definition of totalitarianism. And it is completely alien to our culture and to our values. And it has absolutely no place in the United States of America. This attack on our liberty, our magnificent liberty, must be stopped, and it will be stopped very quickly. We will expose this dangerous movement, protect our nation's children, end this radical assault, and preserve our beloved American way of life. In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. It's not going to happen to us. Make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. In so doing, they would destroy the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, and that lifted humanity to new heights of achievement, discovery, and progress. The violent mayhem we have seen in the streets and cities that are run by liberal Democrats in every case is the predictable result of years of extreme indoctrination and bias in education, journalism, and other cultural institutions. Against every law of society and nature, our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but that were villains. The radical view of American history is a web of lies. All perspective is removed. Every virtue is obscured. Every motive is twisted. Every fact is distorted and every flaw is magnified until the history is purged and the record is disfigured beyond all recognition. The radical ideology attacking our country advances under the banner of 
social justice. But in truth, it would demolish both justice and society. It would transform justice into an instrument of division and vengeance. And it would turn our free and inclusive society into a place of repression, domination, and exclusion. They want to silence us, but we will not be silenced. We will state the truth in full without apology. We declare that the United States of America is the most just and exceptional nation ever to exist on Earth. We are proud of the fact that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and we understand that these values have dramatically advanced the cause of peace and justice throughout the world. We know that the American family is the bedrock of American life. We remember that governments exist to protect the safety and happiness of their own people. A nation must care for its own citizens first. We stand tall, we stand proud, and we only kneel to Almighty God. This is who we are. This is what we believe. And these are the values that will guide us as we strive to build an even better and greater future. We must demand that our children are taught once again to see America, as did Reverend Martin Luther King when he said that the founders had signed a promissory note to every future generation. Dr. King saw that the mission of justice required us to fully embrace our founding ideals. Those ideals are so important to us. The founding ideals. He called on his fellow citizens not to rip down their heritage, but to live up to their heritage. Happy Canada Day. Let me give a huge shout out to the amazing volunteers here with the Ottawa Food Bank spending the day harvesting fresh vegetables for families in need. And Justin and I um, and the kids were so happy to be able to lend a hand. And right across the country, we're celebrating inspiring people like everyone here today, people like them, but also so many of you who have turned a challenge into an opportunity to unite as citizens and as a country. This year is unlike any other. But it's certainly not the first time that our country has celebrated today during tough times. 80 years ago, our parents and grandparents marked this day almost a year into the Second World War. That weekend's edition of the Toronto Star told them that they were living in circumstances such as no one imagined would come to pass. Well, eight decades later, that sounds pretty familiar. Maybe you're able to spend today with family and friends, something I don't think anyone will take for granted after this spring. But maybe that's not possible for you. Maybe you're celebrating without someone you love. A mom who's a frontline worker. 
a friend who hasn't been able to come home, a loved one you've lost to this terrible virus. The last few months have been hard, and on this Canada Day, we need to continue to be there for each other. Now, the reason that our communities are resilient, and I know that they are, the reason that Canada stands strong and united, and I know that it does, is the choices that Canadians make every single day. The nurses and doctors who protect those around them, the women and men in uniform who serve at home and overseas, and the people of every age, faith and creed who stand by one another. What makes Canada special is not that we know that this is the best country in the world, it's that we know that it could be. We know our work together is not yet done. Not until every senior has a safe place to live. Not while anyone faces racism or injustice. Not while we still have so far to go on the path of reconciliation. Where we go from here is up to each of us. As Canadians, we share a vision for our country and we want to get there together. And that's why we keep each other motivated. We lift each other up. We have each other's backs, but we also have each other's hearts. We are so proud as Canadians to know that our reputation is that we are strong because of our diversity. And through these difficult times, not only is the world watching, our kids are watching. So to all the kids out there, you've been so amazing. We're so proud of you. You are the leaders of today and tomorrow. Together, we are unstoppable. When the Toronto Star in 1940 remarked that people were celebrating this day at a difficult time, they also said this. It has become Canada's century, Canada's century of opportunity to change the course of history. That was the reality our parents and grandparents were called to face. That was the challenge to which they rose. And this is the country they built. On this Canada Day, it is our turn. We must now restart and rebuild a Canada for the 21st century. My friends, I know that together we are ready. Bonne fête du Canada tout le monde. Happy, happy Canada Day everyone, we love you. It may have sounded friendly on the surface, and I don't know about you, but what we just heard from the Trudeaus was utterly chilling. What an embarrassing and shameful affront to Canada and every positive value Canada has ever stood for. It was utterly juvenile. Now to see the Trudeaus at the Ottawa Food Bank harvesting fresh vegetables for families in need is an image of Canada that does not paint a very flattering picture of the country. They say we're celebrating inspiring people like everyone here today, but also people like you have turned a challenge into an opportunity to unite as citizens and as a country. Or so says Sophie. <laughs> what, is, what the hell is she talking about? What opportunity is she talking about? Opportunities of unity? And what does that mean? In Canada, opportunities are disappearing with every single day the government continues to wield its lockdown powers over us. Shutting down the country has united us? We wouldn't even be allowed to be in the same room together if Trudeau and his government had their way. What's particularly inspiring about harvesting vegetables for families in need? Why are there families in need? What about the inspiring people who are feeding their own family and kids despite the fact that Trudeau and all the other lefties in the country have shut down their means of survival? And when Justin Trudeau dares to compare Canada's involvement in the Second World War with living circumstances such as no one imagined would come to pass, and that, well, eight decades later it sounds very familiar, well, yeah, the Second World War was instigated by two leftist ideologies. Maybe you're able to spend 
today with family and friends, something I don't think anyone will take for granted after this spring, but maybe that's not possible for you, says Trudeau. And yeah, you know, again, thanks to you, no one will ever be able to take any fundamental freedom for granted as long as Trudeau or any politician leaning left is in power. And then they say this, Maybe you're celebrating without someone you love, a mom who's a frontline worker, a friend who hasn't been able to come home, a loved one you've lost to this terrible virus. The last few months have been hard, and on this Canada Day, we need to continue to be there for each other, end quote. Well, look at the people that Trudeau identified. All people somehow involved with or affected by the government lockdown, a condition caused directly by his own government's actions. And as far as any quote-unquote terrible virus goes, this government has done everything possible to make it all the more terrible. And it isn't that terrible, as stats are beginning to reveal. Yet even so, overall flu deaths in Canada are literally no different this year than any year past. And then there's this constant collectivist call. We need to be there for each other. Why do we need to be? What's the urgency? What's the problem? What's the threat? Remember, this is supposed to be a celebration of nationhood, not an appeal for political altruism. The reason that Canada stands strong and united, and I know that it does, says Trudeau, is the choices that Canadians make every single day. Wow, what an absolutely mindless and meaningless statement. Notice he says strong and united, not strong and free. If a country's not first and foremost free, then strength is an illusion, and any unity arising within that country would be a forced unity at the point of a gun. And that's exactly what the Trudeaus are prescribing throughout their entire Canada Day message. (laughs) I couldn't believe it when he said this. What makes Canada special is not that we know that this is the best country in the world, it's that we know that it could be. And... You know, he said that in not just one, but two or three of his presentations. So in other words, Canada is not the best country in the world, but let's pretend it is. What an unconscionable thing for Canada's prime minister to be saying. I guess what makes the country special to Trudeau is that it still seems malleable enough to shape it into the political dream of a globalist left. We know our work together is not yet done, he says. What? Our work together? What kind of work? Since when did we sign up for this project? What's the objective? Nobody told me about this. Well, not until every senior has a safe place to live. Not while anyone faces racism or injustice. Not while we still have to go so far on the path of reconciliation. Where we go from here is up to each of us, he says. So in other words, our quote-unquote work together will never be completed since injustice racism, and reconciliation for the sins of Canada will never be overcome under this government. Why is Trudeau talking about seniors having to have a safe place to live? Because of his government's complete neglect of this group of people under his watch. This is a country that has Canada pension plan, old age security, single-payer socialized health care. I mean, we're the ideal socialized country, and yet seniors apparently can't find a safe place to live in Canada? Is there a disconnect here somewhere? Not while anyone faces racism or injustice, he says. Yet it is his government that explicitly pursues policies of racism and injustice. This is the leader that took a knee 
to Black Lives Matter, a racist movement with an explicit Marxist agenda dedicated to continued chaos and destruction. And he says, not while we still have so far to go on the path of reconciliation. I don't even know if I want to go down that path. This is what the Prime Minister of Canada brings up on Canada Day. Trudeau had absolutely nothing good to say about Canada, and he said it several times. Where we go from here is up to each of us, he suggests. Well, what? Each of us? As an individual? With individual choice? And if so, then what happened to we know our work together is not yet done? Can I act as an individual, or am I forced into some collective? <laughs> Jeez. But again, we still don't know anything. We, we have no concrete about what he's talking about. Quote, when the Toronto Star in 1940 remarked that people were celebrating this day at a difficult time, they also said this, it has become Canada's century, Canada's century of opportunity to change the course of history, and this is the country they built, end quote. Well, this is not the country that they built. Canada today is more the country that Trudeau Sr. built. The country they built was not a welfare state, but a free dominion. On this Canada Day, it is our turn, he says. Your turn at doing what? Reinventing the wheel? We must now restart and rebuild a Canada for the 21st century, he says. My friends, I know that together we are ready. Again, ready for what? He never says. It's some new vision that he can never identify. What he's doing is trying to turn Canada into the very kind of nation that our World War II soldiers and veterans went to fight. And then Sophie Gregor says, As Canadians, we share a vision for our country, and we want to get there together. And that's why we keep each other motivated. We lift each other up. We have each other's backs, but we also have each other's hearts. We are so proud as Canadians to know that our reputation is that we are strong because of our diversity. And through these difficult times, not only is the world watching, our kids are watching. And so, to all the kids out there, you've been so amazing. We're so proud of you. You are the leaders of today and tomorrow. Together we are unstoppable. <laughs> what was that about? Sounded like the next Greta Thunberg style campaign is just around the corner. You know, using children to push a destructive political vision. And that's what's going on here. They're really working the kids over in the schools. And this is why, get back to homeschooling until this is straightened out, man. Trudeau's wife informs us that we all share a vision for our country as Canadians and then fails to define what that vision is other than one embracing diversity, the poisonous venom of multiculturalism with its not-so-hidden anti-white racist agenda. That's the vision. But the kind of diversity they're talking about is not strength. And the Trudeaus know it. And that's why the Trudeaus keep calling for us to work together in a state of unity. Because they know diversity isn't that. <laughs> I know they mean it in a different way, but that's how misleading all this language is. I mean, which is it? Unity or diversity? Of course, the diversity of which they speak is a skin color, not a diversity of ideas or opposition or competing interests even. And, you know, I hate to say it, but Trudeau and his wife sounded as wacko as the illiterate, incoherent, and inarticulate organizers behind Chaz in downtown Seattle 
or the crackpots occupying Nathan Phillips Square on the front steps of Toronto City Hall, which apparently no one seems to know about unless they watch Rebel News. What the Trudeaus have presented in their Canada Day message is a completely inarticulate and incoherent vision for Canada, and of Canada for that matter. Everything in their presentation was disrespectful to the nation of Canada, if not motivated by hatred for this country. It was just pandering and zero substance. Justin Trudeau, think about this, Justin Trudeau is the very enemy that Trump described and defined in his Mount Rushmore speech. The contrast between the Trudeaus and Donald Trump is as philosophically and politically polarized as the contrast between Karl Marx and Ayn Rand, really. Notice Trudeau avoided raising Canada's British history, even when bringing up Canada's role in World War II. It's not the first time our country has celebrated quote-unquote today during tough times. Eighty years ago, our grandparents and parents marked this day, quote-unquote, almost a year into the Second World War. Of course, the tough times Trudeau was mentioning occurred when July 1st was called Dominion Day, not exactly a point of history that Trudeau wants to bring up. What a pathetic Canada Day celebration message by the Prime Minister of Canada. I mean, he's basically saying, Happy Canada, everyone. Sorry about all the hardships we've been causing you. Kindness, courage, and compassion will get you through this. But don't worry, there's more hardship to come, and it will help to unite us. <laughs> what? Me worry? Now for his reflections on Trump's Mount Rushmore speech, here's British YouTuber Carl Benjamin's Akkad Daily July 5th commentary. I very much enjoyed Trump's July the 4th speech at Mount Rushmore, and I thought it was actually quite a mark of strategic brilliance on his part. Now, the general theme of his speech was excellent. Uh, frankly, he sounds like me. He sounds like it's my agenda coming out of Trump's mouth. Listen to this. I, I, I can't, I, I've probably said exactly this word for word at some point in my career on YouTube. There is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commands, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. Bravo. I mean, honestly, have I not used those exact words at some, you know, like, different points in videos? This is exactly how I have been describing it. It is, again, far-left fascism, but Trump repeats himself. But this was an excellent speech nailing the left to the wall on what they are and what they have been doing. And this is why Trump's speech was just the, like I said, the manifesto of Americanism. First of all, we'll talk about this New York Times article. Again, just to remind you, the New York Times, not big fans of Mount Rushmore. So when Trump gave his speech, they said, Trump uses Mount Rushmore's speech to deliver a divisive cultural message. Oh, it's Trump being divisive, is it? Standing in a packed amphitheater in front of Mount Rushmore for an Independence Day celebration, President Trump delivered a dark and divisive speech on Friday that cast his struggling effort to win a second term as a battle against the new far-left fascism, seeking out to wipe out the nation's values and history. What? Are you saying they're not? I mean, should we just have a quick recap of things that have happened recently? I mean, it turns out that... The statue of Lincoln in the act of freeing the slaves, the very act of emancipation, is now racist. 
and Boston are going to remove it. I mean, listen to the way they describe this. For generations, Bostonians have called for its removal due to its racist depiction of a black person. It's a slave being freed. That's a racist depiction of a black person. That's insane. So, is Lincoln now a racist? Because just thinking about Lincoln freeing slaves means that the depiction of the black person in that conception is itself demeaning. So go on New York Times. With the coronavirus pandemic raging and his campaign faltering in the polls, his appearance amounted to a fiery reboot of his election efforts, using the holiday in his official presidential address to mount a full-on culture war against a strawman version of the left he portrayed as inciting mayhem and moving the country towards totalitarianism. I can barely f***ing read this. Mayhem? Mayhem. Right, okay. So, Minneapolis itself, just, just Minneapolis, 400 businesses were damaged during the riots. Is that not mayhem? $500 million worth of damage in one city. Mayhem! And that's one city. It was in 40 different cities that these happened. T 20 people died. Jesus Christ. Right, and then, so when Trump says, our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children, angry mobs trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crimes in our cities, where is the lie? How is that not a perfectly accurate statement regarding the actual situation that has occurred? This seems to be totally factually correct, but this... Trump barely mentioned the frightening resurgence of the pandemic, even as the country surpassed 53,000 new cases on Friday, and American health officials urge the nation to scale back. And later in this article, they'll say, oh, and Trump's becoming out of touch with the, the people's fears of the coronavirus. What people's fears of the coronavirus? People seem to be just going everywhere. And if you look at the number of deaths per day in the United States, on July the 4th, it was 273. That doesn't seem to be a massive out-of-control pandemic. Again, it seems that things are going down, at least according to Google's data. Maybe they're wrong, who knows? You can't drag up this boogeyman that is just not present in people's lives. However, walk down these cities, uh, walk down the streets in these cities, you can see boarded up walls with all cops of bastards, communist hammers of sickles, and Black Lives Matter spray-painted on them. My god, man. This is a product of the Democrats. This is not a product of Trump and the Republicans. What else are we supposed to say? It's genuinely amazing to watch them claim that Trump's lying about the damage that the radical left has done to America. And they, they continue to do the flag burning, the statue pulling, the business smashing, the people killing. And the New York Times is like, yeah, God, Trump just lives in this alternate reality. He's so divisive. But the president's attempt to drive deeper the culture wars around a national holiday during an intensifying health crisis, is it intensifying though? Is it? The coronavirus on Friday for the first time infiltrated Mr. Trump's family circle. Okay, well they've only got a 99% chance of surviving. I wonder if they will, right? But they carry on going on and going, coronavirus, coronavirus. And then in recent weeks, South Dakota has had one of the country's most encouraging trend lines. The state averaged a few dozen cases each day. Well, that's good. So you, like it's petering out. That's wonderful. But anyway, the BBC, of course, were like, "Oh my God, Trump denounces council culture at the Fourth of July event." Well, why wouldn't he? It seems that every single day, someone else is being cancelled. Trump gave an amazing speech. It is good to support Americanism because Americanism actually represents an ideal of progress and civilization, an order that can be successful. The alternative is the communist revolution that the left has been trying to push, which won't be successful.
It's just a mask. It's just two weeks. It's just so we don't overwhelm the hospitals. It's just non-essential businesses. It's just until the cases go down more. It's just until we get a vaccine. It's just a few side effects. It's just a bracelet. It's just to let others know you're safe to be around. It's just an app. It's just to let others know who you've been in contact with. It's just a few more months. It's just a video. It's just an email account. It's just a credit card company. You can use cash. It's just a few places that won't take cash. It's just a little chip. It's just for medical information and paying for things. It's just for travel. It's just so you can get your driver's license. It's just so you can vote. It's just a few more years. It's just a statue. It's just a building. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a flag. It's just a piece of cloth. It's just a blood test. It's just a scan. It's just a chip. Just a dog. It's just a clump of cells. It's just the bad people. It's just the undesirables. It's just the Jews. It's just the Christians. Just the people who don't think like us. It's just right. And that's the name of the show you're listening to as we broadcast around the world and online. And what we just heard originated from a Twitter post entitled, It's just some of y'all need to wake up. (laughs) And it's just a corny virus. And it's just a few of the headlines that continue to appear in my local paper, the London Free Press, over the first three news days in July. All of them linked to COVID-19 in some way. Here's just a sampling. Will Mackey make us mask up? Council should seek Mackey's mask guidance, politicians say. Holiday beach crowds try to follow rules. Music venues seek help. They've had no income since March and don't see a reopening in sight. Swimmers need to book city pool time. Leamington Farm with 191 COVID-19 cases shut down. Reopening isn't going to be easy. As doors reopen, should you go? Loosen borders. Risk assessment. New reality of global travel. Spread still possible with no symptoms. COVID-19 reshapes Canada Day festivities, online events. And I just have to read a couple of lines from this item since it relates to Trudeau's comments that we heard earlier. Ottawa, large celebrations were replaced in many parts of the nation with backyard gatherings and digital events as Canadians marked a Canada Day unlike any other in the country's 153-year history. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spent part of his morning with his family harvesting broccoli at the farm operated by the Ottawa Food Bank, end quote. And then the article repeats some of the Trudeau quotes we've already heard, completely uncritically, of course, and... It gives us an update on the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in Canada. So happy Canada Day. And here's more headlines. Face it, masks a must on the bus. Crisis helps us understand why Canada works. Sounds like Trudeau's message. COVID mutation may spread more easily. Fauci. As pubs reopen, PM tells Britons to behave. Pesky adults keep ditching playground caution tape. Emergency team deployed to Essex virus fight, Ford says. Historic homes face COVID-19 cleaning challenges. Ontario won't order provincial beaches closed. The last piece needed for recovery. We need governments to make one last poker bet to make the pandemic recovery a success. $12 billion for municipalities. If we can flatten COVID-19 curve, we can do the same with CO2. 
<laughs> I'm telling you, this stuff just goes on and on and on each and every day in the mainstream media. It is psychologically deafening. So you can well imagine my pleasant surprise to find an article such as the following one by Terence Corcoran in the National Post of June 15th. This was part of the paper's Junk Science Week, and his article is called The Precautionary Disaster. How the return of the precautionary principle led to the great economic lockdown, but the principle was not applied to the lockdown. And I quote, the global economy has been brought to its current perilous condition by specific and deliberate government actions. The virus didn't do it. The virus kills some people, not the economy. Governments and politicians did that when they effectively adopted the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle originated in Europe and emerged as part of a 1990s global movement to install quote-unquote sustainable development as the model for future economic and science policy making. The principle took off a year later when, under the dominance of Maurice Strong, the Canadian giant of anti-capitalist globalism, it was implanted into the 1992 UN-Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. Article 15, quote, Where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage, lack of full scientific certainty shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation, end quote. All this may seem like ancient history, but variations on Article 15 guided the politicians and bureaucrats who turned uncertain science on the COVID-19 virus into a global economic shutdown. Such enthusiasm for, or even awareness of the precautionary principle has been dormant in public discourse for a decade or more, hibernating behind a forest of ideological conflict, debate, and frequent rejection. The Wikipedia entry for Precautionary Principle is a 14-page dog's breakfast summary of the concept's legal history and multitudes of definitional inconsistencies and application problems. Lockdowns and meltdowns will cost more lives than the virus itself. As Peter St. Ong of the Montreal Economics Institute summarizes, indications that COVID-19 science was fatally flawed keeps growing. If this is even partially accurate, then the precautionary principle applied to the coronavirus has morphed into the precautionary disaster principle. Lack of full scientific certainty, says the Rio version, shall not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation. Cost-effective measures? If there's one thing we know for certain about the Great Lockdown, it's that zero effort was dedicated to establishing whether the trillions of dollars in economic loss, not to mention the unprecedented disruption in the lives of billions of people, were justifiable. Gone is the real reference to cost-effectiveness. In some cases, Harvard University's Cass Sunstein warned, regulation eliminates the benefits of a process or activity and thus causes preventable deaths. If this is so, then regulation is hardly precautionary. Indeed, it violates the precautionary principle. That the cost of the precautionary lockdown will greatly exceed the benefits now seems certain. The Hoover Institution's David Henderson and a colleague wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal, the data are in. It's time for a major reopening. And one should add, to begin a global examination and a review of the precautionary disaster principle of following the science at any cost, end quote. Well, of course, it was the precautionary principle to which we objected on this show from the very outset of the declared pandemic. In philosophy, that's one of the fundamentals. 
And while articles, podcasts, and videos exposing the disastrous decision to force economic lockdowns are surfacing in droves via various online sources, they're still very rare in the mainstream media. In fact, I was recently forwarded a link to a June 2nd working paper by Dennis G. Rancourt, Ph.D., researcher Ontario Civil Liberties Association, that was very disturbing indeed. This written report included dozens and dozens of links to references and sources and pretty much stuck to the healthcare virology and science side of the issue while generally avoiding politics, except where that was unavoidable. And I think the title of the report pretty much summarizes the case being made, and I quote, All-cause mortality during COVID-19. No plague and likely signature of mass homicide by government response, end quote. Wow. He's not alone in arriving at that conclusion. But for the mainstream media, when it comes to COVID-19, well, they're still in the first two weeks lockdown period. Except, of course, when it comes to Black Lives Matter protests. And any data suggesting that their expectations were completely off the mark is just simply ignored. And that's why they're preparing for the second and third pandemic waves. And that's why they want everyone to wear masks. When something that's supposedly a coronavirus pandemic becomes a polarized political issue, then you know it isn't about the pandemic or virus anymore. And in that regard, face masks have become symbolic of the divide between left and right. And that shouldn't be too surprising. Because here's a relatively reliable rule of thumb. If the left generally supports a measure, including the wearing of face masks, then it's probably the wrong thing to do. The fact that far more people on the left, whether they know they are on the left or not, choose to wear face masks while those on the right do not, is no mere coincidence. It's the natural pattern of choices taken by those who do not choose to think independently versus those who do. Anyone who's considered all the pros and cons of wearing face masks would be far more likely not to wear one, because that's the more rational thing to do, in my humble opinion. We've already visited the issue of face masks over several recent broadcasts of the show and have featured several qualified voices on that topic who strongly advised against healthy people wearing masks and, for that matter, even social distancing. In his original Computing Forever YouTube posting of June 11th, Dave Cullen reprised many of those same voices and personalities that we ourselves already featured on the show, so in preparing the following audio bite from his posting, I actually avoided repeating those voices. Instead, I've only added Cullen's introduction and a new voice on the face mask subject that we haven't yet featured on Just Right, and that's the one of Dr. Buttar, about whom I've heard so much from other YouTubers and podcasters. To Dr. Buttar's commentary, I then added a portion of a July 2nd conversation between Blaze TV's Sarah Gonzalez and Yako Buyans that certainly brings the issue of wearing masks to life. Face coverings should be mandatory in Ireland for anyone shopping or travelling on public transport, an immunology expert has said. Kingston Mills, Professor of Experimental Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, said England has done the right thing in making masks compulsory on public transport as part of efforts to contain the spread of coronavirus. Ladies and gentlemen, the face burqa the dehumanizing symbol of submission to the new regime. It also has to be said that a mask that literally covers a person's mouth seems somewhat reflective of our time of censorship and restrictions on free speech. We're living in a post-truth world. 
there is more information and evidence than ever to support the fact that this virus is being massively overblown and that there has been no need for lockdowns, social distancing or face masks. And yet, the establishment and the mainstream media move forward with their agenda regardless. But there are those who have been speaking out about the usage of masks by healthy people. Dr. Buttar has given his opinion on the use of face masks. Because as people are allowed to come back into society, their immune systems are already going to have been suppressed because of the wearing of the mask, which is going to increase cortisol levels. It's going to put people into a pseudo hypoxic state. They're having to suck oxygen through a mask. It drives the cortisol levels up, which then creates a sympathetomimetic drive. It suppresses the lymphocyte subpopulation, decreases the immune system, and renders an individual more susceptible to any type of pathogen, whether it be bacteria, virus, spirochete, mycoplasma, yeast, parasite, whatever. So the face mask agenda seems to be, if, if, you're, if you look at it from just a safety standpoint, it's highly suspect. If you look at it from a scientific perspective, it's the agenda is nefarious. The use of a face mask is designed to protect not the doctor or the nurse, but the patient. So that when a surgeon is operating and doing a bypass surgery or a herniography or a joint replacement, that if the surgeon sneezes or coughs or drools or spits or whatever, you don't want to get the surgical field contaminated. You want to maintain that sterile field. When now, this mandate of wearing a mask, if you notice during the press conferences with the president, the president's never worn a face mask. So the first thing about a face mask is that we already talked about, it's suppressing the immune system because you're driving the person into a hypoxic state. There have been multiple studies that have been done on this where they've actually studied surgeons and seen the level of oxygenation and especially on a chronic basis. Um, Dr. Blaylock, Russell Blaylock put out a great paper that summarized many of those research points. So we know that that happens. We know it suppresses the immune system because of that uh, sympathetomimetic drive that we initiate because we're having to suck oxygen through the face mask. On top of that, we breathe out carbon dioxide. But when you've got a mask on, you're actually creating a decrease. You're creating actually an increase in respiratory drive because you get more carbon dioxide coming back from the face mask. Now, the face mask also creates other types of issues because you've got you've got you know irritating your face and sweating and all the stuff so you're always fiddling around with your with your face and then the last point about the face and there's a lot of points we can make about the face mask but the last and most idiotic aspect of this is that it's like building a chain link fence to prevent a fly from getting into your house or a split rail fence to keep mice out the viral particles that we're trying to keep out of our bodies are so much smaller than the smallest pore of these masks. And I'd imagine, Yaku, uh, the havoc it would do on people's immune systems to just wear masks all the time. So this very flight we were on, no, I kid you not, we're in the air for 15 minutes. The, the pilot says, is there a medical professional on the airplane? My wife looks at me and she says, no, come on. <laughs> don't, right? don't so I'm me. waiting, there's no one else. I studied medicine. I don't practice medicine, but I studied. I go to the flight and I said, okay, listen, I'm not a licensed doctor, but what's it? Yeah. Go back to the guy. He passed out from hyperventilating because he had a mask on. Mm -hmm. We set this guy up. I take his mask off. In a matter of two minutes, he's back to normal. His pulse rate's back up. His blood sugar's back up. He gets to the ambulance when we land. Of course, it's a circus because the ambulance races next to the airplane. They check him for two minutes ago. This guy's good. Yeah. So yes, mm -hmm. we, we are, there are antibodies that we build 
from just enacting interacting with environment, right, that builds our immune system. My toddler's crawling on the floor. He's eating off the floor. Yeah. It's good for him. Yeah, yeah. Where we walk, it's good for him. It's how we build immunity. We're actually seeing the human body reacting to corona positively. Why is the president calling Black Lives Matter a symbol of hate? Well, what the president um, was noting is that uh, that symbol, um, when you look at some of the things that have been chanted by Black Lives Matter, like pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon, um, that's not an acceptable phrase to paint on our streets. Look, he agrees um, that all Black Lives Matter, including that of Officer David Dorn, Patrick Underwood, two officers whose lives were tragically taken amid these riots, all Black Lives do matter. He agrees with that sentiment. But what he doesn't agree with is an organization that chants pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon about our police officers, our valiant heroes who are out on the street protecting us each and every day. Americans of all races have protested in all 50 states uh, around that phrase, Black Lives Matter. And the president is here calling it a symbol of hate? He's talking about the organization. Um, I would note to you that the greater New York BLM president has said, if this country doesn't give us what we want, that we will burn down the system. And I could be speaking literally. I'd call that a pretty hateful statement. Wait, Kelly, yes, Ben. He's not talking about the organization in his tweet. He says yes, the words. Ben. He says the words. Which, Black Lives what's Matter. What's the name of the organization again? Black Lives Matter. There you go. You that, just answered the, the, my question. Donald Trump's press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, is simply awesome. That was a quick lesson in basic epistemology, or if you prefer, in basic definitions and the law of identity. But Kaylee, he's not talking about the organization in his tweet. He says the words. He says the words. Black lives matter. <laughs> What's the name of the organization again? <laughs> you see the word game that they are playing? Kaylee, why is the president calling Black Lives Matter a symbol of hate? Well, Black Lives Matter is far more than a symbol of hate. It's an organization of hate. It's, it is racist. It is run by Marxists. It is not concerned with black lives, except in how to make black lives worse. And we've covered that extensively over our last two shows. And in the knowledge of the real identity and purpose of Black Lives Matter, it is the media's responsibility to bring those facts to the public's attention not to mislead them by continuing to suggest that Black Lives Matter is a legitimate statement or a movement, and then to encourage the public to support them. I mean, that is patently immoral and completely irresponsible. And since the mainstream media won't do its job as a function of the fourth estate, then it was up to Trump to do it for them. Hello? Somebody has to do something right, and it's always Trump, isn't it? That's why they hate him so much. But Americans of all races have protested in all 50 states around that phrase, Black Lives Matter, and the president's calling it a symbol of hate? Now, imagine if under similar circumstances, the name of the group was something like, oh, say, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or say, the Ku Klux Klan. I just picked two examples of organizations that were fully supported by the Democratic Party in the past, just as Black Lives Matter is supported by Democrats today. Kaylee, why is the president calling the KKK a symbol of hate? Well, because it's a racist group. 
But Americans of all races have protested in all 50 states around that phrase, KKK, and the president's calling it a symbol of hate? You know, do you get the point? <laughs> you see what's going on here? I'll tell you. I turned on my local AM radio station this past Monday morning to learn that our local school board is revamping public education, uh, the curriculum at least, to include black history and aboriginal history or First Nations history. I forget what they call it. Now, I'd be all for that if I could even for a second believe that truth or any full context will ever be taught as quote-unquote black history. Will they learn that the American Democratic Party has been the source of just about all racism and racist policies in the country? Will they be taught that all forms of racism are a product of collectivism, the founding organizational principle of the left? There's no such thing as quote-unquote black history, since any such classification is based solely on skin color, or in other words, on racism. And therefore, it is not primarily and essentially based on significant events, which is what history is made up of. There are so many differing histories and cultures that comprise primarily black people that it would be, quite frankly, racist to group them all together. Why would we do that? Because of their skin color? Now, I myself have a few black nieces and nephews, and I can speak from personal experience that black history and culture in, say, Trinidad, is very different from black history and culture in Jamaica. And of course, that's all very distinct from black history and culture in differing areas of the United States. And that doesn't even count all the distinct nations and histories of Africa. Does black history mean African history? And if so, which nations or which tribes? Or does black history mean the history of American blacks who found themselves fortunate enough to be in a country that eliminated slavery while the rest of the black world continued to practice it? And for the record, please, everybody's history was tribal in the past, and everyone's history encompassed the institution of slavery, which took many forms, even encompassing cultures and periods of history, where slaves could own slaves. My own grandfather died a slave, murdered in the Ukraine by the Russians after the Second World War ended, along with millions of others, and I don't hear anyone chanting that their lives matter. Thankfully, it was the Anglosphere that essentially ended slavery. And this was because the miracle of capitalism had been discovered that made the abolition of slavery possible. You either have an economic condition of capitalism, or you have some form of slavery. And that's the future that our eager slave masters have in store for us, I'm afraid. But as to what we've got in store for our future broadcasts, well, to find out, you'll just have to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be of culture who can tutor thy children. What am I bid for this fine specimen? Three shekels. Oh, three shekels. He is worth 20 times that many. Look, look at these teeth. Uh, uh, oh, I have a lot of cavities. I use the wrong toothpaste. I, I, I appreciate your interest in me, sir, but I am late to the office. Excuse me. Five shekels. Do I hear six shekels? Y yes, yes, I'll bid six shekels. Uh, you'll have my check first thing in the morning. When the bank's open, you'll... Silence. Sold to Mr. Bay for five shekels. You and your friends are going to get in a lot of trouble pushing around a United States citizen. It could mean war. War. 
war with the United States of America. What is this United States of America? <laughs> <laughs>